Wind and Tide. And here we go. Welcome to season two of, of Family, Family 360. 360. <laughs> <laughs> A huge thank you to those who journeyed along with us through our first season. Thank you. And based on comments from our listeners. Which we really appreciate. Sure too. This season, we're extending the length of our episodes to better accommodate the bountiful wisdom mm-hmm. of our guests. So you can listen all in one sitting or throughout the week as time allows. Each episode contains short music breaks that typically occur when the conversation does a slight shift. And those may be the pause places if you need to listen in shorter bites. We hope you find this new format pleasing. Let us know. We love feedback and there's a whole section for comments on our website, family360podcast.com. Or you can follow and connect with us on Facebook Mm -hmm. or Instagram where we post insightful quotes from the episode of each guest. And now let's jump into today's conversation. And the start of season two. Woo! Hello and welcome to Family 360. A podcast of conversations exploring life together, parenting, and all the ways we are family to each other. I'm Rachel Cram, educator and founding director of Wind and Tide Education Community. I'm Roy Salmon, audio producer and founder of Whitewater Studios. And together, we're the hosts of Family 360, interviewing specialists, artists, and storytellers. And now for this week's episode. This week, we are with mental health specialist, occupational therapist, and vicar, Dr. Sharon Smith. Mm-hmm. We are very intrigued by her assorted mix of professional platforms. <laughs> She's so eclectic. Yeah, and we are even more impressed once we got to know her. Absolutely. She's such an interesting and insightful person. And so warm. She's so warm. In 2001, Dr. Smith helped to co-found Sanctuary Mental Health mm-hmm. with the goal of helping organizations around the world move towards inclusion and well-being. She was born in South Africa and trained there as an occupational therapist. She now lives in Canada and serves as a parish vicar in Vancouver, British Columbia. She is dedicated to raising awareness and reducing stigma around mental health Hmm. and works to elevate welcoming inclusion between all people. Which was part of what made us want to interview Sharon. Yes, that welcoming inclusion Mm -hmm. is so important for all of us in life together. Yep. So let's jump into today's conversation. Okay, well, here we go. Dr. Sharon Smith. Thank you so much for coming into the studio today. When I first met you, you were speaking to my staff in 2014. Mm -hmm. And I still remember so much of what you had to share. And that's what made me want to bring you in today. And I'm looking forward to hearing from you again. Mm, Thank you. It's lovely to be here. You have worked very much in the area of mental health, and that's Mm -hmm. what we're going to focus on today, because I think it's fair to say that all of us will be affected, whether personally or with someone we love, by a mental health challenge in our lifetime, certainly. And your doctoral work has backed that up. Mm -hmm. Um, But before we get into all of that, I'm going to start with a question that I open all our interviews with. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Go for it. Aristotle stated, give me a child at seven and I will show you the adult. Is there, Sharon, a story or an experience from your childhood that has shaped the adult that you are today? Mm-hmm. There sure is. Okay. I was born with club feet, actually. Oh. I'm from South Africa. That's mm. where the accent's from. Lovely accent. Um, but when I, I was first hospitalized when I was about two and a half, mm. and it was old-fashioned Catholic hospitals, and my parents weren't able to stay with me. So for seven days, I was in hospital, and they would only be able to visit during visiting hours, mm. so just for the afternoons. And we as a family didn't realize how much that traumatized a little girl of two and a half. Mm. And so I actually had separation anxiety and I didn't know it until my 30s and actually was working on my own mental health issues and realizing gradually through some visualization with a spiritual director and a mentor that there was this early memory of being in a crib which actually looked like a cage in those early sort of memories Mm. and have experienced freedom from anxiety as I've explored some of those early memories. Hmm. Well, our early years are so formative, right? They shape our mind, but not always into the form we might want or need. Yeah. Our minds can be scary places because we have learned a pattern of thinking through life that unless it's externalized and challenged in a safe, loving place, we will continue to 
think our world into being in a particular way. Mm. And for me, it's a spiritual practice mm. that every week for half an hour, someone gets to hear what's going on for me. And I offer that to others as well. And part of the reason for that is to undo ways of processing and thinking and to replace them. And so I have a bit of a network of people who we're saying what's going on and we're being as honest as we can. Because mm -hmm. if I can't be honest with one person, who can I be honest with really? find it interesting you use the term spiritual practice for that. Spiritual is such a misused word right now, I mm. think. Can you define what you mean by that being a spiritual practice for you? Because I sense it being more than uh, something to do with religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I did my doctorate in the area of spirituality, and the other doctoral students used to always joke and say, Sharon's trying to nail jello to a wall <laughs> because it was so undefinable. Mm. But I, I used a framework where it was defined through somebody's way of understanding their world, so a worldview, an understanding of the world that is ever-evolving, that is first given to us in the place of our birth, and then continues to be refined by the people and the places and the books and movies that we get exposed mm. to through our lives. And then that worldview, the limits of your seeing, keep getting opened up more and more. And spirituality functions within that as a way to connect ourselves to ourselves, a way to connect us to the communities around us, and then a way to connect us to the visible natural world, and then in some people's worldview, to connect us beyond that to the invisible. Mm -hmm. And for some, that would be a God or a higher power or the universe or whatever mm -hmm. language people feel comfortable using. Mm -hmm. So spirituality for me functions within our worldview as the energy of connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. What a, a meaningful description of spirituality. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And hearing your emphasis on connection helps me clarify my next question about your doctoral research, because I believe as part of your doctoral studies, you also looked at mental health. And language that you use that I really appreciate is how humans flourish and how they languish. Mm. What drew you into looking at mental health with such interest? Yeah, well, let's start there. Some of it was my own inner struggle of trying to make sense with a traumatic experience. Both my parents are children of alcoholics, so that came into our home as well. And then I married a man who died by suicide, mm. and so mental health sort of chose me. I don't know if I chose it, mm. but it was a, a way I, I found myself needing to understand more and more. And so really came into the field, I think first unconsciously in my 20s, but then more consciously in my late 20s, 30s of coming with real questions mm -hmm. around the pain that those around me were experiencing. So that led me into that area. And I looked particularly at the spiritual lives of people living with schizophrenia. Just to, to say what my understanding of schizophrenia is, is a condition that begins in someone's late teens and into their early 20s usually. And it is it is experiences that someone has that are unexplainable. Mm -hmm. and, um, Can you define experiences a little bit mm -hmm. more? So it's, it's a disorder of the perceptions, of our perception. So someone might see things that other people can't see or hear things that other people can't hear or even have inner movements, like they sometimes feel snakes in their stomach mm -hmm. or inner sensations. Mm -hmm. So perceptually, it's a perceptual disorder and is that related to that time in their life? You're saying it starts in your early 20s. Mm. That seems to be a time of perceptions really changing naturally for people. Is, is there a reason why schizophrenia comes in at that point in life? Mm -hmm. there, there are many theories as to why. I think one of the most dominant theories is that 
for any mental health issue, really, there are precipitating factors and predisposing factors. So the predisposing factors are things that we are wired with. So it's our genetic component. It might be our brain chemistry. So the things that we have internal to us, the precipitating factors are things that happen around us that create a situation where we're more vulnerable. Mm. And then those two things come together. So it might be someone's level of capacity or resilience and then the stressors that might come their way. And when those two things meet... So you might be predisposed, but no trigger may ever occur, may so ever you may occur. never materialize in your life. Exactly. Or you may get to a certain point where things that happen around you become quite chaotic and you lose your ground. So, for example, I remember a client that I worked with who grew up in a very loving, secure home. He was exceptionally bright at school, and so he got a scholarship to go to university. But university was was in another province. This is in South Africa. Mm. And he had to travel to go. And he left this secure home, this place where he knew, and everything was taken care of, right? Laundry was done. Lunches were packed. He didn't have to think of anything. And suddenly he got to move to another province. And he became very disoriented in that place. And the beginnings of schizophrenia started. He started mm. to hear voices at night calling him. And then what happens with the condition is that gradually you start to try and make sense of what you're experiencing. And that leads to some beliefs that might not be real. So the medical world would call those delusions, mm. fixed false beliefs. So if he's hearing these voices, then he assumes that there's a devil inside of him. Or he's hearing these voices and he believes that someone is breaking into his place in the middle of the night and broadcasting. So the delusions are a way of making sense of experiences that are beyond what you can explain. Mm. So in somebody's life, if they're predisposed... So he would have been predisposed? He would have been predisposed, but it never showed itself. And what has family been aware of that? Well, as soon as they started to recount stories of an uncle and a grandmother right. and before, you know, as you were saying earlier, before mental health issues became something we were comfortable talking about, mm -hmm. we just would say, oh, that's just auntie so-and-so. That's just how yeah. they are, yes. you know, and we'd have some words to describe her quirky behavior. You know, we'd put language to it. Yes. But when something happens, like with this particular young man that I'm speaking of, then as the family starts to bring their history into a different light, mm -hmm. they begin to realize that there were other members in the family that perhaps were struggling and nobody knew what the inner world was like because mm -hmm. they just made assumptions based on their behavior. Mm -hmm. Listening to that story as a mother, I can think, oh, I just want to keep my child's world so safe then totally. uh, and so structured. And of course, we can't live like that. And there's so many places we, I want to go in this conversation. But just to know with that young man, could you back up his life into structure and safety to help him regain the ground of, of mental health? Mm -hmm. Or how do you approach that? Well, why don't we revisit what you asked earlier around flourishing and languishing? I'd because if I do that, then I'll revisit the story and let's put him back into this. We'll, we'll put him using that framework. Would Fabulous. That okay. I love that. So flourishing and languishing and mental illness and no mental illness function on, if we could imagine, a two-way continuum. So you've got a, a line that runs vertically. So, so from north, north, north to south, to, right? right? Flourishing's at the top, languishing's at the bottom. Okay. And then let's say you've got an east-west line and you've got mental illness on one side and no mental illness. Okay, so you've got four quadrants. So you've got four quadrants. Two at the top, two at the bottom. Yeah, okay. and so the latest research in mental health recovery has shown that all individuals, whether you live with the predisposition of a mental illness or not, so whether you're on that horizontal line, you can still move up and down the vertical line. So you can flourish in life. Okay. And by flourishing, we mean having a wellness 
that enables you to socially connect with people, that enables you to contribute the gifts and skills and unique qualities that you have, as well as looking after your own self and self-care, and then also resting and enjoying life in our leisure activities. So flourishing is that place where we're in our sweet spot mm, okay. in all of life. So and that's in the north. That's in the north. Okay. And that's kind of where most of us would just love to hang out yes. and be, right? Okay. But we know that life drops us down into that part below, which... You head south. You head south. That's okay. right. I'm going south. <laughs> and, uh, and that area is called languishing. Okay. And in that place, we diminish as people. And often it's because of something we were experiencing, so a form of suffering. So it could be a grief experience uh, for losing a partner, losing a family member. It could be losing a job and losing confidence in the mix of that. Mm -hmm. It could be immigrating and just not knowing how to fit into this new environment that you find yourself in. So anything can drop us from a flourishing to a languishing period. And then if you're not predisposed to a mental illness, Within us, there is this capacity, and some scientists will call it resilience, to bounce back, to gradually find our footing and move back towards flourishing. Now, for all of us, that takes time. Mm -hmm. And so the, the grief experience, for example, zero to five years, they usually say within that time, you've integrated the experience back into your life and you now can continue. So to recap, if we're not struggling with it, if we're not predisposed to a mental illness, then our resilience, our capacity to handle grief or loss and incorporate it into our life, mm -hmm. that is what's going to move us up and down the flourishing to languishing mm -hmm. line. That's that movement. So what if you are predisposed to a mental illness? Well, take this gentleman I was speaking of at the beginning. Let's give him a name. So let's just call him Matthew for now. Okay. So Matthew moves to another university, another province for a time. And while he was flourishing when he was with his family, when he makes the move, he becomes disoriented. He doesn't know how to connect. It's a foreign place. He's now got more tasks to do than he's ever had to do. Plus, he's got the university courses and mm -hmm. lots of expectations mm -hmm. because the finances have been provided mm -hmm. by a granting agency. And so he finds himself languishing. And what that looks like is that he can't sleep at night initially because he's worrying. Mm -hmm. He can't concentrate and focus because he, he's just so aware of everything that he has to do. And so his capacity for his studies, his capacity to self-care, his capacity to connect with others is reduced. And so he finds himself languishing. But because he's predisposed to a mental illness, he finds himself languishing with some particular symptoms and some mm. particular experiences. And the languishing for Matthew pushes him into a place where he starts to hear voices and experience the other symptoms of schizophrenia. Mm. So hearing voices beginning to believe things that can't be proven, so these fixed false beliefs, mm. not being able to hold conversations anymore because his inner world just becomes really chaotic mm. and loses interest, mm. loses interest in life. And so he finds himself languishing, but with some particular symptoms around that. And why this model is helpful is because it just puts us all as humans going between flourishing and languishing. Mm. And I think the conversation shifts to one about capacity and not one about you have a mental illness and I don't. Mm. So for someone who is languishing, who doesn't have a mental illness, they might need different things to be able to move back up to flourishing again. They may not need to stop their work, stop their studies. They may need to take a three-month vacation 
uh, sort some things out in the home, maybe, maybe learn a new skill, maybe really get some rest, maybe take vitamins, you know. So what someone with, without a mental illness needs to regain flourishing is different from what Matthew would have needed. Okay, and I noticed when you were doing this, you moved your hands into quadrants. Yes. So you you started at the top, flourishing. Flourishing is at the top. And then we slid down to the bottom to languishing. Yes. And then when you talked about his mental illness kicking in, you moved over into the bottom left-hand quadrant. Yes. Is there a name for that quadrant? Yeah, no. <laughs> there isn't. <laughs> So, but so what, what it, what it in is, that bottom left-hand quadrant someone is you are languishing with, with a mental, a mental illness. illness. Exactly. And so on the right-hand quadrant, then, you are languishing, languishing without a mental, mental illness. illness. And okay. so what it's saying is all human beings can languish, mm. whether you live with a mental illness or not. Mm. And it's saying languishing is not a static place. You don't land there and stay there. Mm. So the model offers just tremendous hope for anybody. Mm. So when you find yourself languishing, you're on a continuum towards flourishing. Mm. So you are just positioning yourself somewhere and you require certain things around you and possibly in you. So if you live with a mental illness, you may need to take a chemical that will help you reset yourself again you, you may require psychotherapy, psychoanalysis to help your inner world reestablish itself so that you can shift back to flourishing again. Mm. So the bottom two quadrants are languishing with a mental illness and languishing without a mental mm-hmm. illness. And the top two ones must be flourishing with a mental illness or flourishing without, without a, a mental, mental illness. illness. Exactly. Well, and I, when, when I remember you talking about this before, I remember the realization of how much that makes it a picture for all of us because we can mm. be somebody who is flourishing with a mental illness and we, and we could be somebody who's languishing without one. Yes. And, and it doesn't really make a difference. Yes. Now, I know that's simplifying it. No, but Dr. Corey Keyes, who's the sociologist who actually um, put this model forward and published it, those were the two quadrants that he mostly focused on. How often do we talk in life about somebody who lives with a mental illness who's flourishing. Mm, And those folks, they hold Mm. wisdom for the courageous journey of what it looks like Mm. to identify that you're languishing and to identify the unique things that you need to regain your wellness again and flourish. And then the quadrant of someone living without a mental illness who is languishing was also a unique thing to discover because it just says that not all languishing is as a result of mental illness. And so we've got some work to do around understanding our family and social systems that can put pressure on an individual such that they languish, whether they actually live with the predisposition for a mental illness or not. Mm. And so it also takes the spotlight off the individual. And what we've tended to do, especially in psychiatry, is make mental illness an individual's issue. And it's not. It's a systemic issue. Reflecting back to a comment that I got through your literature, Sharon, that all of us in our lifetime will experience either personally or with someone we love, a mental health crisis. In those situations, whether it's for ourselves or with someone else, what is the best form of connection? How do we reach out? Mm. We need each other. There is so much energy and health that can happen when somebody has two or three or more people around them who love them and care for them through all of life. Mm. But it's not only the one way. It is also being able to contribute into a friendship that someone can actually regain their sense of worth. So let's say, I might not be explaining this very well. Well, Are you saying that we need to be able to give and receive? Yes, in relationship. And when somebody is living with a mental illness, let's call somebody Anne. Let's say Anne is a friend of mine and Anne is living with bipolar mood disorder. So she's experiencing highs and she's experiencing lows and sometimes gets into moods that she cannot function well and contain herself and puts herself at risk. Mm. If she doesn't have a friend with her in those crisis moments to be 
her sane voice to her to name what's going on, she'd be lost. So, so someone who could so take... an advocate, are you? Yes, okay. yes. So, in, in and, a, and can that in, truly be a friend, or are you are you looking really for someone with experience and training for a role like that? I personally believe that a friendship is the most valuable piece because you've got trust and you've been able to see each other in all of life. Mm. So not just when Anne is really depressed or really manic, but you know Anne when her mood is at a place where it's modulating normally Mm. and Anne knows you know her there. Mm. And so when you see Anne manic, you're not only seeing the mania, you're seeing your friend Anne. And I think that makes a huge difference. Mm. Um, Those kind of friends can be really hard to find. Really hard to find. And I think what's also hard is, let's say Anne goes into a manic place and I journey with her into that place, which is costly in friendship. Mm -hmm. It means I give up some of my time. It means I might take Anne kicking and screaming into the emergency. Mm-hmm. It means I might make phone calls she doesn't want me to make. Yeah, you're um, opening your life to some chaos. Yes. But that's the crisis place. Then Anne starts to recover. And now our friendship has to shift. So I, as Anne's friend, have to learn how to release my need to care, the one who knows what's going on and care and love and give, and step back and let Anne find her ground again by herself and move into a relationship stage, which I call confidence building, where Anne is now in a place where she can discover what it means to be Anne again, and she can discover that in the context of our relationship, Mm -hmm. in the context of our friendship. Mm -hmm. But that takes work on both sides. Well, I think as we look out into our communities, those friendships are hard to find when you have two people without a mental health concern. Yes. So even more difficult when you have one or both with mental health concerns. Yeah, that's right. When you came to speak with my staff at Wind and Tide, Sharon, you brought up this term, Anamkara, mm. which is an Irish term, and it stuck with me for all these years It's a beautiful definition for a particular kind of friendship. I think one that nurtures us towards flourishing. I love that term, flourishing, in life. Mm. Can you describe that? Mm -hmm. I discovered the word Anamkara through the writings of John O'Donohue. John O'Donohue was a Catholic priest and then moved out of that world to be a spirituality writer and a motivational speaker mm-hmm. within the business world and within organizations. Mm-hmm. And he died way too early. Mm-hmm. But he has a wonderful way of articulating what it means for us to be human together. All of us just trying to find our way. In John O'Donohue's book, which is called Anamkara, he uh, describes it this way. In the Celtic tradition, there is a beautiful understanding of love and friendship. The old Gaelic term for this is Anamkara, the idea of soul love. Anam is the Gaelic word for soul, and kara is the word for friend. So Anamkara in the Celtic world was the soul friend someone to whom you confessed, revealing the hidden intimacies of your life. Mm. With an Anamkara, you could share your innermost self, your mind and your heart. Mm. So rich and life-sustaining friendships. And we all want people like that. Yes, we do. I think the reason those kind of friendships are hard to find is because sharing your innermost self, as you say, we don't always know our innermost self. Like we're not aware. Exactly. And I think through the movements of flourishing and languishing, whether you live with a mental illness or not, we need people to see us Mm. and to verbalize what they see. One of the psychological paradigms that I often pair with Anamkara is the Jahari window. I think it was in the 1950s or 60s, two psychologists, Joseph and Harris, that's why it's called Johari, put this framework together. And it really is what things we are aware of 
for ourselves. I'm all about squares and lines and everything today. So (laughs) you start to draw the diagram and I'll describe it. So it's a window that has four quadrants. Okay. Um, and back to four quadrants. Back again. to okay. four quadrants. Apparently, that's what okay. we're doing. Okay, okay, we can do this. I love this. These quadrants describe the four stages of awareness in ourselves, right? Yes. Um, do they all have a title? There's yes, four they areas. Do. They do. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. that's a good way to go at it. Then. Okay. Why don't we do that? Okay. Okay. So I'll describe your diagram of Jahari's window, and then you'll expand. Okay. So the first quadrant is called the arena. What stage of awareness are we at when we're in the arena? Well, I think as humans. I realize for myself, and I know this for others, that we find it difficult to put ourselves fully out there with others. Mm. So there's actually just a really small part of ourselves that is known to us and known to those around us. Mm. And if we want to call it the arena of our lives, and that's the place where we function in a known way. So I'm aware of it and others are aware of it. And those could be things we're proud of, things we're not proud of, but they're known. They're known. Okay, the arena. Okay. Yes, that's the arena. Okay. And we'll post a diagram of this on our social media platforms so the listeners can see. Yeah. So there's that area. But then there are these areas where uh, things we know about ourselves, they could be really shameful parts of our past. They might be a particular way we think, but we're worried if we verbalize it and let people know about it, that they will distance themselves from Mm. us. And so we keep it just to ourselves. Mm. So it's an area that is known to us, but not known to others. So would that be things we don't want seen in there? Yeah, things things we're ashamed of. Things we might be afraid of saying because other people may think we're being snobby or snooty. So it could be something we're really good at, but we don't want to tell people because we don't want them to feel badly around us. Mm. And this is called a facade. And we use that language, don't we? We say, oh, you're just, it's a facade. So we're pretending, we're wearing a mask. We're keeping something to ourselves and not letting others know. Keeping it hidden. Keeping it hidden. Okay. And that doesn't do much for vulnerability within a friendship, creating that Anamkara relationship, Mm. because it's about the arena. But the facade holds us back when we we stay in that place. Mm. Yeah. So the arena is where we're known. The facade is where we hide. That's right. What's the next one? What's the next quadrant of awareness? The next is when people see things that we don't see. It might be known to others because they witness it. They see us behaving in a certain way, but we may not realize that we're behaving in a particular way. It's like a blind spot. It's a blind spot. Mm. Yeah, it's a blind spot. Is that what it's called? Is that area? It is. It's a blind spot. You got it. it. Okay. (laughs) And that also can prevent the Anamkara relationship Mm. from sealing because soon as we enter into a place where we're keeping things from each other, we are not really connecting. So in that case, the person who's keeping the things is the person who sees the blind spot, not the person who has the who blind spot. Who has the blind spot, right. Mm-hmm. And it's it's nerve-wracking, right? Broaching yeah. that place where we sit down with somebody and we have to have a hard conversation mm-hmm. and say, you know, I've noticed that when you do this, I feel like this and the impact on me is this. Something along those lines. So mm-hmm. giving and receiving of feedback and being a witness into each other's lives mm-hmm. um, creates more authentic humans and it creates more authentic relationships. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to to do that. And yeah. so, well, I yeah. think we want we want to think that we want to know our mm-hmm. blind spots, but it can be much harder to hear than we expect. Yeah. yeah. And they need to be done in an environment of love. Mm-hmm. Sometimes someone who I find it difficult to be with might point something out. Mm. But where I process it is with my Anamkara. Like Mm. I process it with the people who I know love me and accept me. Because I'd be able to say, you know, Joe said this about me this morning. What do you think? And they may say, well, (laughs) you know, the truth will set you free, but first (laughs) it'll piss you off. So I think there's something there Mm -hmm. about forming these friendships. Mm -hmm. 
And in the context of our own wellness. And what was the last quadrant? Do you think it was? Well, the last one is unknown to them and it's unknown to me. And that is the mystery of life that keeps calling us forward into greater awareness of who we are. Mm. That's beautiful. So just as a quick recap, with these levels of awareness, there's the arena, the facade, the blind spot, and then this mystery area. Like, Mm. is that something that we have to anticipate? In some ways, I wonder if in spiritual traditions, there's some wisdom that gets held there. So the mystery might be God or God of our understanding who holds the knowledge that's beyond us, Mm. you know, beyond our knowing. Mm. There is someone or something that we keep leaning into, that we lean into and opens us up to more. And so as you lean into that last area, the mystery quadrant, does that affect your response to the other quadrants? Like, does that help you drop those masks and avail yourself to the blind spots Mm -hmm. to move more of your awareness into your arena? Yes. Okay, and that's how you build your arena. Yes. And some traditions, like I think of Buddhist meditation, for example, one of the reasons of becoming still and listening to what's going on in our minds, right, trying Mm. to keep our minds quiet, is when you quieten down, you actually become aware of the things you think about. Mm. But when we're chatty and we're doing everything we're doing, we're not fully aware Mm. of of what's going on within ourselves. And so meditation can be a practice that actually grows our awareness, exploring the parts of ourselves that are unknown to us. Mm. Thinking back to the language of flourishing and languishing, I think that's not typically where we go when we want to flourish in life. I Mm. think we tend to go for more noise and Mm. more action. Distraction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. I am a firm believer that most of the resources that will help us through a languishing period will be grown within us, whether we live with a mental illness or not. Mm. Can you give some examples of the types of things that build our resilience? Mm -hmm. You've talked about friendship. Are there other examples? Mm -hmm. So friendship would be a communal practice. Um, that will build our resiliency. Anything that grows our sense of our own strengths. So when we slow down and confront the fears, the fear of I can't be alone or the fear that I can't do it or the fear that I'm going to fail and then paying attention to how we think, paying attention to the story we tell ourselves of our past and then our bodies. If we don't keep our bodies healthy through eating well, and exercising, and self-care, and rest, those will build resilience for us as well. So resilience is mind, body, spirit in community, and there are things we can reach for in all of those areas to build resilience. Mm -hmm. Now, Sharon, you have this beautiful book of poetry in front of you by David White, who I love, Mm. and you keep picking it up and putting it down. So I'm thinking you want to read out of it, which I would love. And I don't want to get to the end of the interview and think, ah, we missed the opportunity. Okay. So do you feel like reading something? Is there something that fits? I, the, um, you know, actually the bell and the blackbird, it's lovely because it talks, in fact, this might be a good place. I've been speaking about resiliency inside and outside you. And this is actually all about that. Okay. It's actually uh, an image that comes from the Celtic tradition where the bell is a symbol of what draws you inward into those quiet spiritual spaces where you grow in self-awareness. The blackbird is something outside yourself in the community that's singing along that draws you outward, but that also grows your self-awareness. And so this poem is based on both going inward and going outward. So I'd love to read it if I can. I'd love you to. Thank you. The sound of a bell still reverberating or a blackbird calling from a corner of a field, asking you to wake into this life or inviting you deeper to the one that waits. Either way, 
takes courage. Either way, wants you to be nothing but that self that is no self at all. Wants you to walk to the place where you find you already know how to give every last thing away. The approach that is also the meeting itself without any meeting at all. That radiance you have always carried with you as you walk both alone and completely accompanied in friendship by every corner of the world, crying Alleluia. There are so many phrases to pick up on in that poem. The word courage mm. jumped out at me there. Mm. Is there a story you could share about courage? Hmm. Oh, it's, it's tricky picking up from a poem. Does courage work for you there? Do you like that? Is I love that the word courage. I just have to find out which okay. kind of story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Can you think of somebody you work with or just... Mm. Uh, I remember you sharing some pretty amazing stories about mm. people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe um, you just reflect back, even back yeah. to that, you know. Would it be too gritty if I spoke about my late husband? No, that's okay. fabulous. I'll do that. Okay. Yeah, so that line in the poem that talks about whether we go outward to follow the blackbird or whether we go inward to follow the bell, mm. either way takes courage. And, you know, when I think of courage, I think of the theologian Paul Tillich, who talks about simply the courage to be. Mm -hmm. And often when someone is languishing, just to exist takes a huge amount of courage. Mm -hmm. I lost a partner to suicide in 2005. And his journey through the years of us being together was really marked by courage You know, on the days when his negative thinking and the depression spiral was too overwhelming and not able to get out of bed and get himself going, to somehow, in the mix of all of that, still muster up courage in the middle of the day to emerge and face the world, even if it was to do something small, Mm. like go and pay the rent or mail a check or anything along, you know, the the amount of courage that it takes to those first, especially the first incremental steps of recovery. When the world's expectations of us are so huge, having been somebody who was active in a career and a big social network and loved life to a diminished world where all he could do was muster up courage just to do the next thing. So I've seen that courage and then the courage to go inward and visit a counselor and have to work through all the the pain and where that pain's coming from. I think the journey of recovery takes a tremendous amount of courage. Mm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned society's pressures. What role do you see that playing currently with mental Mm. health? I, I worry as society continues to speed up and to create more and more expectations of a human being from very young. It seems we're no longer given a reprieve. You know, when we're young, we, we used to not have to meet so many expectations. And now as parents, we're preparing our kids to meet the world. And because there is so much more waiting there, we've got to start our preparation early. What do you think it looked like before? What was, what was the golden age of young? Mm-hmm. Isn't it funny how we all have the golden <laughs> age of young? Um, I mean, I, rem- <laughs> I remember going to school and coming back and not having anything planned in the afternoon and not having to worry about time mm. or about when things needed to happen. And the next thing would be that mom would call us for, for dinner and that would be... Mm the next thing. Mm. Um, But I had space for imagination and for play. Mm. And then as adults, we haven't learned how to play if we didn't play as young people. And play as adults is so important Mm. to have a day when we don't do anything. Mm. I mean, for some of us, that's unheard of. It can be frightening, actually. It can be. 
Yeah. So learning to unplug from some of the things that are maybe precipitating the extra stressors on us. I, I use electronics a whole lot, but I think that we have not put some ethics and values in place that help us and guide us in the usage of electronics mm -hmm. so that we know when it's okay not to use them mm -hmm. and when we use them. Well, it's still so new. We're learning yes. so much, and I think yes. 50 years from now we'll look back and know what was wise and what was not. Yes. But at this point, it's all experimental, isn't it? It totally is. You know, I, I teach at UBC, and I notice among the young 20s age group where they're monitoring their phone usage more. So they do phone piles. When they go out for lunch, they mm. put their phones in the middle, and they don't use them when they're together. And I'm noticing how this generation is critiquing my generation right. where we haven't learned the balance yet and it is creating a lot of stress that's really hopeful way. isn't that, that hopeful yeah, yeah i think so mm -hmm. Sharon, there is so much that you've shared and I, I hesitate to want to wrap up because there's so much more I want to ask, but I'm going to need to head that direction. So can I ask, is there one piece of wisdom that you would want to offer when we think about creating a home environment that supports flourishing health? I would say um, if we can uh, grow in our ability to share honestly with each other how we feel, how we think, what we are experiencing in such a way that we, we leave the answers up for discovery mm. rather than closing them down with this is why, this is what's going on. So, this Can you give an example of what mm -hmm. you mean by that, of mm -hmm. leaving open for discovery? Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about... Let's say a child has a dream and they bring the dream up around the breakfast table mm. and the dream maybe scares mom and dad a little bit. Mm. Perhaps it was a dream about moving to another country or maybe a dream that is outside their comfort zone. Mm. And our knee-jerk reaction would be to say, it's only a dream. You know, a dream you had last night in the middle of the night, wonder if you ate something or and diminish it. To be able to entertain that and even to verbalize, wow, a dream like that actually makes me feel a little afraid. Hmm. How does it make you feel? And so to be able to hold something in the conversation and be honest about the way it, it makes us feel and see where it goes. Because that sort of imaginative life and way really can build resiliency for somebody as well as that style of communication mm. connects us more intimately with each other. Mm. Mm. And you're hearing a parent express to their child their true feelings, which mm -hmm. obviously there must be some boundaries on how far you go with that. Yes. But language like that is important. And it's modeling. Mm. It's modeling that it's okay to have hard feelings and good feelings, as long as the child is not becoming the deposit of the parent's feelings, mm -hmm. right? So there's an avenue where the parent is working with their feelings with other adults, mm -hmm. but with a child, they can model it's okay to express it this way. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to have some ambiguity. Yes. We are moving more and more into uncertain times. And if home environments can find ways to be comfortable with uncertainty, we'll be preparing children for life that awaits them. Mm. Mm. There is so much more I want to ask you, mm. but I think we have to wrap up for today. Sharon, thank you so much mm. for your time. You're welcome. You're welcome. Well, this was not the kind of conversation I typically associate with a parish vicar, but but I loved it. Well, do you know many parish vicars? Actually, 
Actually, I do. Quite a few. Yeah. They're insightful, all Mm. of them. But she was very intentional Mm. in her relationships as the source of her flourishing. So uh, she was. And I would go to her church (laughs) if she was closer. (laughs) You would, would you? I would. So Dr. Smith read a lovely poem by David White, Mm. The Bell and the Blackbird. And interestingly, David White was really good friends with John O'Donohue, who wrote the book Adam Cara. Which uh, is a Celtic soul friend concept that Dr. Smith loved. Yeah. And I think the two of them, David White and John O'Donohue, were Adam Cara's. Yes, very much so. Which is cool. Yeah. So with our deep thanks for the conversation to Dr. Sharon Smith, Mm -hmm. we thought we'd end with another of David White's poems that speaks to the vibrancy that unfolds when we engage with... Relationships. Yes, and the life around us. So here is David White's poem, Everything is Waiting for You. Your great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone, as if life were a progressive and cunning crime with no witness to the tiny hidden transgressions. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. Surely, even you at times have felt the grand array, the swelling presence, and the chorus crowding out your solo voice. You must note the way the soap dish enables you, or the window latch grants you freedom. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity, The stairs are your mentor of things to come. The doors have always been there to frighten you and invite you. And the tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything, everything is waiting for you. I'm Rachel Cram. I'm Roy Salmon, and thank you so much for listening to Family 360. 360. We share quotes and links from all our guests on Family 360 on our website, Facebook, and Instagram. Join us. We'd love to continue the conversation with you.